So uh, no one has been better, few, few companies have been better at engaging the imagination than, than Apple computers. And uh, I was talking with a buddy of mine recently, and he had watched uh, a couple of days ago when they unveiled the new iPad. Uh, and um, uh, apparently this new iPad has, like, fingerprint security in it. <laughs> And apparently it's like the thinnest iPad that has ever come out. It's the iPad 4. It's like, it's thinner than a pencil, apparently. And you can now get it in gold um, and space gray. So my friend watched the, the release real time and saw all the features laid out. And he said something to me that I thought was really interesting. He said, yeah, he was like, you know, before the presentation was, was over, I had already bought it. I had already bought it. I was already like using the features. I, I was already living, living happily ever after with this, with this like finger, fingerprint technology. It's going to solve all of my problems. I already owned it, and I know exactly what he's talking about um, cause, because there have been other Apple launches that have really interested me. <laughs> and, and before the presentation was even over, I was like, oh, yeah, I've, I've already bought it. Now, it's just a matter of time before like, I get the resources, once I have the opportunity and the resources, like, you know, that iPad is mine. That iPhone is mine. Um, and, uh, but then when the next upgrade comes out, I might just discard it for, for the new one. I already own it. I already own it. Um, now, as wonderful as the new iPad is, you and I hunger for something uh, much more fundamental. Uh, and that is to be known and loved by other people. To be known and loved by other people in a way that brings us to a deep connection with them. That's meaningful, where we are accepted and loved um, in a powerful way. We want to enjoy intimacy and camaraderie with other men, with other women. Um, and it doesn't matter really if you're an introvert. It doesn't matter if you're an extrovert. You, you want to be relationally, deeply connected to other people. Um, and, and we have this capacity not only to be relationally connected to other people, but to indeed have sexual union with other people. That is how we are made in our bodies, in our souls, to be sexually and romantically even joined with another man, with another woman. Um, and uh, so in, in our desire to be connected, has there ever been a time when you've looked on someone else the same way uh, that my friend looked on the new iPad, which is, I already own it. I'm so hungry to be connected that, I, that I'm already living happily ever after with you. I already own that man. We, we have kids together. We have the perfect life together. He swept me off my feet in the perfect way. Or I, I already own her. I already have access to her features, to her body. I already own it. Um, I'm awash with the thrill of being wanted. I'm awash with the thrill of being connected. I already own it. He's unattainable. She's unattainable. But I've, I've made her attainable. I've made him attainable in my own mind. I already own it. Their feminine mystique, their masculine mystique. So powerful. And I found a way to own it. I found a way to possess it in my imagination. Their body, their emotional availability, their intelligence, 
I'm connecting with it all in a powerful way. And all it's going to take is just resources, just the opportunity, and I can actually truly own it. This is the essence of a sex fantasy or a romance fantasy, something that everybody deals with in some way or another, but few talk about. I think The Onion reported that 700 million Americans, or seven, every American has 700 million sexual fantasies a year. The Onion, I, a news source I know you trust. <laughs> but behind it all is a belief. This I own it way of imagining life. Behind it all is a belief, and the belief is this. In order to be connected to somebody... I have to consume them. In order to be connected to somebody in a meaningful way, I've got to consume them. I've got to take one of their features and possess it. That feature can be emotional. That feature can be sexual. It could be, any, it could be their power. But you think to yourself, I, I'm going to find a way in my mind to consume them. I must consume them to feel connected to them. And so connection is found in, in getting all of the benefits from this person, from the object of your fantasy. I must possess someone in the most intimate way possible in order to be truly connected with them. This is the logic of a sexual fantasy or a romance fantasy. That, that we can be loved and connected once we get what we want from the object of our adoration. Now, today we're going to tell the story of two men. Story of two men. One, uh, both of them have powerful imaginations, and both of them have incredible resources to bring about what they've been thinking about, to pursue what they want. Both of them have incredible resources and a strong imagination. One man goes the way of, I already own it. And he uses his resources to get what he's been dreaming about. Another man takes a radically different strategy. And the question before all of us is, who is party to more intimacy as a result? Where, which guy, which man finds more intimacy? Is it the one who goes the way of, I'm going to consume somebody in order to feel connected? Or is it the one that goes the radically different way. Um, and, I, and I want you to hear this, friends, because I want your life to be filled with satisfying relationships. I want you to know intimacy. I want you to know connection. I want you to know camaraderie. I'm for you. That's why we're talking about this. It's really important that we listen. It's really important that we, that we see these two stories uh, play themselves out. Um, so I want you to uh, invite you to turn in your bulletins uh, to the First Samuel reading, page three. And this is we're going to talk about the first guy, David. Now let me tell you about David. Let me tell you about this guy. Um, you see in in the first verse. And it says, in, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. This man is, is a warrior, par excellence. 
It's how he became king. Yes, God anointed him, but the, the, the path that he took to ruling a, a kingdom and taking it to a place that had never been before what was he has the capacity to go into unconquered land and, and absolutely take out the enemy. He was a passionate poet warrior. Not only did he win battles, he wrote epic poems, epic prayers about those battles being won. And, and uh, the battles that he won and the poems that he wrote, the songs that he wrote, captured the imagination of the nation. This is a warrior par excellence. He wins. All he does is win in battle. Okay? But there's come a time in, in his nation where his men have asked him at, at a different part in 2 Samuel, please stop coming out to war with us. And this makes sense, doesn't it? That once you get to a certain point in your leadership of a nation, you're not supposed to be on the battlefield anymore. There, there are warriors for that job. For the same reason that we would um, have a hard time with, like the Secretary of State or the President of the United States going out to battle. Um, we have soldiers for that. And we can always recruit and train new soldiers, but we only have one Secretary of State. We only have one President of the United States. And it's a much bigger deal to the whole nation if the head of state gets killed in battle than if a soldier gets killed in battle. So please, David, don't come out with us anymore. Play the role you're supposed to play. The men say in a different part in 2 Samuel, lest the light of Israel go out. Lest the light of Israel be snuffed out. They didn't want David to die. And so David is dutifully staying home. And I imagine that it's difficult. It says um, in verse 2 that late one afternoon, David arose from his couch. <laughs> Guys, have you ever been on a couch? When, 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 like, all the action is somewhere else, where all the fun is happening somewhere else, where all the unconquered territory is somewhere else, have you ever been on the couch? Low blood sugar levels. You are totally bored. All you can do is, like, ah, oh, just I'll get to eat some Ritz crackers or whatever. You know? What's the point of life? You're lethargic. You're tired. You're demoralized. All the camaraderie is somewhere else. That's where David is. And friends, this is where a lot of us can be, different times in our life. We aren't connected. We aren't engaged. We aren't focused. It happens, it's a normal part of life. We're lonely, we're angry, we're tired. We're stressed, we're bored. That is the environment in which a lot of romance fantasies flare up. A lot of sexual fantasies flare up. It is a time when our imaginations can stop seeing God and stop seeing God's reality and stop seeing the bigger picture and can curve in on ourselves, on our desires, on our loneliness, on our pain, and create a story in our minds that will resolve that pain. And so David goes out walking on the roof of the king's house, it says in, in verse 2. And he saw from, a, uh, from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. The woman was very beautiful, and I already own it. If I could just consume that beauty, I, I could connect 
to her, and I would be loved. David's imagination is captured. And, and now it's just a matter of resources, right? He's already got the iPad in his hands. He's already got access to all the features. His life in his imagination has already been, been connected and completed in a unique and special way. He's already got the iPad in his hands. He's already got the woman in his arms. And he thinks to himself, if only I could just now find a way to connect, then I could consume her and we would be one and I would be loved. Perhaps it was even, we could, we could conjecture, although there's no way to prove it, that David sees Bathsheba and she's like unconquered territory. There's some kind of mixture of, of forbiddenness and desire. Maybe it reminded him of going into battle an unconquered land, an unattainable reality that he could find his way into, battle his way into, and then know the rush and the thrill of, of, of conquering that land. We could conjecture. It's possible. That's how other romance fantasies go down. That's how other sexual fantasies go down. This person is unattainable, and they have a mystique about them. They, they could complete me in some way, and I, if I could only find a way to them, if only I could find a way to connect, Wow, then, then I would be complete. Then I would be healed. Then I would know intimacy that I so long for. And uh, David's got the resources. He's the king, so he's got power. There's a huge power differential between David and Bathsheba. Huge power differential. We don't even know, the text doesn't even tell us where Bathsheba was at in all of this. The power differential was so intense. He had all the power. He had a great rooftop balcony. He had all the money. He had the messengers. Uh, and so David starts to use his resources. He starts to inch closer. And so he sends a messenger to ask about her. And the messenger comes back. And here's what the messenger says in verse 3. Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam? So she's a daughter. Okay, she has a mom and a dad. She, she's not just a woman bathing. She's a person. And then the wife of Uriah the Hittite, not just a daughter, but a wife, someone who is beloved by one of your best soldiers. The closer David gets to trying to make his fantasy a reality, the, the ickier the situation gets. The more base and banal it becomes. The, more, the, the mystery starts to fade, and you realize, I'm, I'm actually using somebody. If only David would have seen that. Isn't this usually the case? Wendy Plump writes an essay in the New York Times. Uh, she wrote an essay in the New York Times called A Roomful of Yearning and Regret. Wrote this in 2010. And she describes the experience of, of being, the, uh, being uh, the victim of an extramarital affair. Her husband cheated on her but also one who carried an extramarital affair out herself. And um, here's what she says um, about adultery. The, sex, the great sex, by the way, is a given. When you have an affair, you already know that you will have passionate sex. The urgency, the newness, and the illicit nature of the affair practically guarantee it. What you don't know is that your life will become an unbearable mix of yearning and regret because of it. 
It will be difficult, if not impossible, to be in any one place without contentment. And she would describe her marriage in this essay as a little bit like the Iraqi city of Fallujah, cratered with spent artillery. From where I stand now, she says, it all looks just like a cheap hotel room, tawdry. Whether you're in that room to have an affair or to escape from the discovery of one. The same point is made from a different angle in a recent post by The Art of Manliness. Um, and there's a, there's a, uh, this post has been shared um, quite a bit. It's called The Possible Pitfalls of Porn. And it describes how pornography works to, and this is not a Christian website, but it's just describing what happens to, to, the, to the mind of a man. It mangles a man's sexuality, and, it, and, it, and eventually porn makes sexuality impossible. Um, and, and this article kind of documents how the, the pool of men who can actually be in a real relationship, who are interested at all in a real relationship, is dramatically shrinking. Because porn is making sexuality itself impossible for these men, especially in a real relationship with a real woman. Sexuality actually starts to break down. Um, so does romance. This is what happens when a I already own it approach is taken to romance, to sex. I already own it. I can consume somebody and then connect with them. But it starts to break down. Um, the same point could be said about romantic comedies and romantic novels and things that engage the imagination, whether you're a man or a woman, about how wonderful it's going to be when you meet just the right person and they sweep you off your feet in just the right way and you have the perfect engagement and you have the perfect wedding and it's all perfectly documented and you look perfect and they look perfect and everything's amazing. And then like you meet the guy that actually proposes to you and his breath smells. And you're like, this isn't what I dreamed about. No. All of a sudden, a real relationship where you could actually know what real romance is is made impossible because your imagination has been warped and shaped and divorced from actual reality. Consuming relationships make real relationships more difficult. And that's what happens in David's life as well. So it happens. David calls to her and... She, he summons her, and she comes to him, and they, and, they, and they have union together. They sleep together. So did it lead to completion? Did it lead to freedom? Did it lead to excitement? Did it lead to uh, amazing connection? Um, verse 5, what does she say? The woman conceived. She sent and told David, I am pregnant. I am pregnant, and you're the father. I'm pregnant, and this all just got real. You had a baby out of wedlock. And in Israel, this is a capital offense. Like, David would have to die if this came out. That was, that was the law of the land that he was overseeing. So then it gets worse. And in short, David seeks to cover up the situation. He, he beckons one of his best soldiers 40 miles away. Uriah the Hittite comes and, and David says, Hey, why don't you go stay with your wife? And your eyes like, no, I've made a, co a covenant with God and with my men. I'm not going to do that. They, they don't get to go home to their wives. I'm not going to go home to mine. That would be breaking faith. David, as a fellow soldier, should know this. 
So Uriah sleeps out, does not stay with his wife. And then David sends him back to the battle with a sealed instructions that he is to give to his commander, which say, you open it up, it says, send Uriah to the front lines and attack a besieged city. So all they had to do to defeat their enemies was to wait it out. They, they, had, they had surrounded, the armies of Israel had surrounded the Ammonites. All they had to do was just wait it out, and they would have defeated the enemy. But instead, he says, no, storm the gate, storm the castle, bad military strategy. Send Uriah first. And, and it all happens. It's, it's bad militarily. And then it, it's also murder. Uriah dies. Um, and, and death results. David covers up his sin, and death results. Other death would result. The baby born from this pregnancy would, would, would also die, and David would mourn. There was all manner of breakdown. There was all manner of death. And this is what happens when we seek to connect with other people by consuming them like a product. When we seek to connect with people romantically, sexually, or even in friendship, only for the benefits. I can get something from you. If I could just angle in such a way to get access to and use what you have to offer, when we take that approach, it does not lead to intimacy. It actually makes intimacy more difficult. So David's weight doesn't lead to connection. Let's talk about the second man and the strategy that he uses to be connected. Turn with me to Ephesians. Um on page four and five. So you can just open to page five. That's the part of the text we'll be looking at. Now, for those of you who have not read Ephesians before, this is a book about the spiritual power, the spiritual power that comes from Jesus Christ. What is the spiritual power and how does it work? And what does that spiritual power look like in relationships? Relationships in all kinds of, in, in, in every kind of relationship. And there's a sentence in this book that I want you to see. It's a very important sentence because it opens up a new and better way for us to experience intimacy, the intimacy that we were created for, the intimacy that we long for. It's in verse 25. And, and verse 25 starts Husbands, love your wives. Now, just let's stop there. How is that bridge between the genders going to be crossed? The bridge between husband and wife, the bridge between male and female. How will that bridge, how will that gap which, which eludes so many people, which drives so many people crazy, that gap which has been the subject of so many movies, so many books, fiction and nonfiction, pornographic and non-pornographic, how will that gap be crossed? How will that chasm be ca- crossed? David and, 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 and many others try to cross that gap through consumption. But what is, what is the author of Ephesians going to say about that gap being crossed? And he says, as Christ loved the church, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, How will the gender gap be crossed? How will the gap between people be crossed? Well, we cross it in the same way that Jesus crossed the gap between himself and the church, which is shorthand for all of the people that have said yes to his cleansing and to his cross and to his love, collectively. He loved that group of people 
in a way that a husband loves a wife or a wife loves a husband. It's profound. It's beautiful. It's intimate. Christ crossed it in a way that we need to learn about. Um, this is the reverse logic of a sexual fantasy because it said he gave himself up for her. Um, so instead of connecting with the one you love by consuming them, he connects with the one he loves by letting himself be consumed for her. He connects by letting his resources, letting his life, letting his power be consumed on, on, for her good, for the, for the good of the church. What motivated this death? Not a fantasy, but a vision. Jesus' death was not motivated by a fantasy. It was motivated by a vision. He could see something in you. Let's just start with you. When Jesus looks on you, he says, you know what? I'm going to, to extinguish and silence all the voices that say you're not worthy of love. And I'm going to do that by taking all of the impurities in your life all of the things that you're ashamed about, all of the things that you could wish you could undo, and I'm going to undo them by taking them into myself, which will kill me. But I'm going to do that because I can see who you are going to become. I can see that you are going to be completely perfect, completely cleansed, completely made new. And I'm going to make sure that that happens through my own death. Now, if you want to understand what the church is, just scale that up. Everybody who says yes to that offer is the church. And Jesus has a vision for the church, which is described as a bride. It's mysterious. It's somewhat confusing. Nevertheless, it's a profound reality in which Jesus' love for you is such that he would give everything up so that he could present you to himself with complete love, with complete perfection. He wants you to share in the actual holiness of God. Do you know that? That Jesus looks upon you and he says, Ah, I can see it. I can see you with the three members of the Trinity in perfect union with us. I can see you in utter holiness. I can see you with utter love. I can see you with eternal beauty. I can see you housing in your dust, in your flesh, the very glory of God. Jesus looks at you and sees that. He has a vision for that. And he says, I will give everything so that can happen. I will give everything so that I can, you, you can be presented to me holy and washed. And nothing will stop me from giving everything for you. That's what Jesus says to you and to everybody who will say yes to that offer, meaning the church. That vision which is much different than a fantasy, that vision that Jesus had firmly in his imagination led him to the cross where he received our impurities, he received our wickedness, he received all that would separate us from him. And it killed him. And God raised him from the dead. And then what God did, we will, all of us who say yes to Jesus will see this happen at the greatest wedding to ever happen which is he presents the church, he gives the church to Jesus as a bride and says, this is the prize for which you died. Now be one. Now be connected. And verse 27 of Ephesians says this, 
so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So what we have here is the promise that when you lay down your resources for somebody else in the manner of Christ, that's what leads to intimacy. That's what leads to connection. It begins with sacrifice. On your part, you say, no, not your life for mine, my life for yours. I will lay down my resources. I will lay down my money. I will lay down my life for you. Nothing is held back. And then what happens is between a husband and a wife, sex becomes an expression of what you've already done with your life. It's one thing, as Tim Keller says, to just give your body away and say, I give you my entire body. But I'm going to withhold all these other things. I'm going to withhold my finances. I'm going to withhold my commitment. I'm going to hold my, withhold my love. You're still auditioning to be my wife or my husband. Um, uh, but I'm going to give you my body. And, and what Ephesians is telling us is, why, why would you send two different messages with your life? That doesn't lead to intimacy. Same with romance. Hey, I'll give you all of my romance. I'll give you all of my emotions. But I'm going to withhold everything else. I'm not really going to be committed to you. Not really, not financially, not, not in terms of everyday life. I'm not going to make all of the, un, you know, the non-satisfying sacrifices that it takes to be married to somebody. I'm not, I'm not interested in, an, an, in the non-glamorous life. Um, I'm not interested in that kind of sacrifice, being connected with someone whose breath smells and who can't be perfect, who can't blow my mind. Jesus points us in a different way. I will be consumed. I will, I will let my resources and my love and my life be consumed. And that is what lead, will lead to the connection. That is what will lead to the intimacy. I'll tell you a story. It's not a, it's not a romantic story, but it's a story of, of when I experienced this kind of love um, from, a, from a mentor. Uh, a few years ago, I was living in D.C. And um, I was not a pastor and I was not um, uh, on the road to church planting. And um, this, this man, Dan Clare, he was my pastor, and he had started a new church on Capitol Hill in D.C. that had itself planted many other churches in D.C. And, and other places on the East Coast. And he had a vision for me. He could see, uh, uh, he could see me as, uh, as a church planter. He could see me as a pastor starting a new church in a city. And I even couldn't see that, and lots of others couldn't see that. And, and, and he said, you know what? I'm going to do everything I can to make that happen. And so what he did is he spent his credibility to get me hired on staff at Church of the Resurrection in D.C. And then he, he, he marshaled a huge part of his budget, not only to pay my salary, but also to give me ministries that I could oversee in the church. And then he let me preach rookie sermons at his church, um, and then he gave, he gave time and energy to give me feedback on my preaching and on my leadership, and, and I needed a lot of feedback. And I needed a lot of help, and I needed a lot of coaching. And then he made all kinds of other sacrifices. He, he's, there was no office available to me. The, the office space was pretty small, and he was just like, just use my office. Just put your desk over there. And so we shared an office, you know, and then he let me have access to all of his books for whatever I needed. And he had Laura and I over to his house. And 
he, he apprenticed me. He spent time with me. And, um, and he laid down his resources for me. And then at the end of three years when the program was up that I was in, he helped me discern and see that this prayer gathering of the, the families here in Chicago praying for an Anglican church, that, 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 that it was a good match for me. And then he's like, you know what? Our church will, will help you get started. We'll, we'll give you some money to get started. We'll, we'll give to this new work. We believe in you. And so in all kinds of ways, he poured out his resources because he, could, he had a vision for who I would be. And, and let me tell you that the conversations that Dan and I had before he laid down all these resources, to the kind of connection that we have now, now that I am a church planter, now that I have started a church, the kind of camaraderie that we share now, the kind of communion that we share now, is so much richer and so much deeper but it, it was because he laid down his resources first. You see, this isn't just about sex and romance. This is about, this is about human connection under the lordship of Jesus. Jesus makes it possible for us, whether we are pursuing a covenant marriage or a friendship, to start with laying our resources down in ways that are unglamorous, but it's motivated by a vision and that leads to a deep connection. It's, I will lay down my resources. I will be consumed so that we can connect. We have an opportunity to come out of our fantasies, friends. Jesus leads us out of fantasies that only lead to death and separation into real relationships. And that is where consuming our resources gets worked out. It is pursuing a friendship it is pursuing a romantic relationship without taking advantage of someone sexually. It is real relationships. It can start with buying dinner. It can start with starting a conversation. But it doesn't lead to less sacrifice, it leads to more. When you enter into the covenant of marriage, into the sacrament of marriage, you are called to a life not of taking, but of sacrifice. Not a life of... I'm scratching your back and you're scratching mine and you were so amazing when we were engaged and how come you've changed? That's not how marriage works. Marriage is deeper and deeper sacrifice and it naturally leads to children and children lead to exponentially more sacrifice. <laughs> when you have a child, then you begin to see what it means for Christ to lay down his resources for the church because when you're laying your resources down for, for your child, they never catch up and giving back. They never catch up. I don't say that with any kind of bitterness. But that doesn't mean that you're less happy to lay down your resources for them. You do it freely. You do it out of love. And you're in it for the long haul. This is not a convenience relationship of, I'm going to discard you as soon as the new iPad comes out. I'm going to lay you aside as soon as the next great person comes along. This is the way of intimacy and love, friends, with real people that you commit yourself to, that you lay down your life for. That is what you were made for. David Brooks talks about the difference between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. And he says that so many people are living today for resume virtues. But they don't ever think about eulogy virtues. And I would, I would just ask, as it relates to your relationships, 
Do you have the eulogy virtues in mind? What do you want said at your funeral? Most of what we want said at our funeral about the way we lived our life is the way Christ laid down his life for the church. They gave, they loved, they sacrificed, they had a vision for me, they had a vision for this community. Over and over and over again, they, they laid down their real life with their real resources for real people. And I will never be the same. That is the result of love. That is the result of connection. And that, my friends, is our calling. Christ offers not only to forgive us of where we have gone astray, where we have turned and used other people, he can cleanse us of that. It doesn't stop there. He turns us outward to love and serve people in his name. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.